Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. This episode's going to be a bit controversial and step on pretty much every toe that I haven't already stepped on. So why don't you head on over to Patreon or follow the Become a Sponsor link on the blog right now before you listen to the episode uh, and hate me for it. (laughs) No, but really, thank you for all for tuning in and supporting the show. Don't forget that this coming March, the last weekend of March, the very, very last weekend, the Mentionables Conference will be in Waco, Texas. You heard right, Waco, Texas, and there will be some great content from speakers like Nick Peters, Mark Lambert, Joel Furches, and then uh, I will be giving a talk on slavery and the Bible and debating a- a- atheist are in raw on if Christianity has historically been in conflict with science. It should be a great event. So head on over to thementionables.org. Remember to put the the there. If you don't, maybe buy your wife some lingerie on the site that you'll probably land on. I don't know. Just make sure to include the definite article, the, thementionables.org. Buy your tickets early, bring a friend or a coworker or someone that you don't really like. I don't care. Just come and join us and bring whomever you wish or by yourself. Just show up. I think that's the takeaway from this little spot. All right. With that, let's dive right into this episode dealing with homosexuality and the Bible. Enjoy the show. He knows there's no end to his suffering, and that is suffering itself. Just to know that there will never be a time when hell will turn him loose. The Bible says that Sodom and Gomorrah were burned with fire and brimstone, and the thousands of piles of sulfur, and the burnt buildings, and the burnt suffix, and the burnt cigarette confirm that, yes they were. He is in a horrible place. Horror like horror has never been known. Let the horror of knowing that you're going to burn forever flood through your soul. I mean, they're just, they're animals. And it's funny because sometimes these sodomite activists, these queer activists, will sometimes say things like, oh, but you know, it's natural faster action because the animals do it. And I always say this, well, you know, I've always said that you guys were animals, so, you know, you're just proving my point right now. Let the horror to know that you're in a dark pit and you'll never have relief from that. That is hell enough for you and hell enough for anyone. Many of us who affirm biblical inerrancy and inspiration will often run into sharp disputes with those of a more liberal theological bent who think that the biblical text is more illustrative than authoritative. One area of dispute seems to highlight the contrasting hermeneutics more than any other issue, and that is homosexuality. For many, even bringing up this issue is a kind of shibboleth, which reveals if the person speaking is on the side of the goodies or the baddies, and that depends on who you're talking to. For many, this is a black and white issue. You're either for LGBT issues or you are ardently against them. 
And this is true from the right and from the left. For those on the left, if you are not joining in your local gay parade, flying a rainbow flag over your home, and teaching your children that gay couples are just as normal and moral as straight ones, then you're just a cog in the backwards, bigoted, hate-mongering, straight, white, male, privileged patriarchy and are the reason why everything in our country is going horribly wrong. For those on the right... If you are not as harsh, crude, and disrespectful to any and every aspect of any LGBT issue, then you are truth-sacrificing, capitulating, soft on sin, queer-loving, liberal, and you might as well go transfer your membership to the PCUSA or United Methodist Church, and you're part of the reason why everything in this country is going horribly wrong. I have to confess, both sides seem to me driven by emotion, rhetoric, and simple sloganeering. What is often lost for the progressive is the moral purity, righteousness, and authority of the scripture over our lives. What is lost for the conservative is the humanity and dignity of every person made in the image of God and the need to love even our enemies as ourselves. If you can forgive me for a little sanctified imagination, if the woman at the well were played out again today in 21st century America, the liberals would likely castigate Jesus for judging the five times divorcee if he wouldn't have been willing to bless her relationship with with her live-in boyfriend. But the conservatives would think him a limp-wristed sexual miscreant for not addressing her by saying, Hey, you whore, don't you know that God hates fornicators? Clean up your act before you come to me for living water. Whore. One misses that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that we are to be holy as God is holy according to the principles that he has laid down for us while the other misses that we are to be salt and light, not judging those outside the church, yes, by the way, that's a verse in 1 Corinthians most people don't know exists, but having a good reputation for being loving, welcoming, and kind, eating in the homes of sinners, and praying for and with them. Both are, in the end, legalists, progressives and conservatives alike. I know that I will have now turned off about 95% of those people listening, but while I deeply appreciate you all for listening, I'm honestly really only concerned with the audience of one who will judge my words by the measure of his word. And on this, I'm thoroughly convinced that the evangelical church has lost the culture wars precisely because we should not have been warring for culture in the first place. Now, I'm going to make several statements here. And we'll have little time to defend them because I actually do have an article that has spawned and spurred me on to make this episode that I want to respond to that's prompting all of this. So I want to get to that. So, But I, I need to give these kind of presuppositions, these, uh, these uh, position statements of mine at the upfront to avoid any uh, backlash let's just say, from people who assume a position that I don't actually hold. So I'm just going to say my position up front. So let me simply state my positions, and then I'll dive into the meat of the article. Number one, I think there is and should be a clear conceptual distinction between homosexual orientation, sometimes called same-sex attraction, and homosexual behavior. Someone may have a homosexual orientation by nature or by nurture, from embryo or from education, but that does not mean that they chose to be attracted to the same sex. They can choose how they act and respond to such an attraction, 
but we need not be mired down in questions about the orientation of their orientation. Number two, homosexual orientation is a result of the fall, but may not be something on its own that makes someone morally culpable. I think that homosexuality is absolutely a product of the fall. But so is the condition that I have, which is a developmental deformation in my skull that effectively has given me a migraine every day for the past eight years. I think in eternity, their orientation and my skull malformation will be healed and both will be set right. So it's not as though I'm saying homosexual orientation is normal in the prescriptive sense. However, in the same way that someone may choose to stay celibate their entire life as a straight person, so too a homosexual may choose to stay celibate their entire lives. They may struggle with lust just like the straight person would, and that would be sin, but their orientation, I think, makes them no more intrinsically unrighteous than you or me. For some to die to Christ means to live a life of celibacy, For some, it means sobriety. For others, it means other things. But it is perfectly acceptable for a Christian who struggles with same-sex marriage to struggle with it, but to commit them themselves in a life of celibacy. Number three, homosexual behavior or action is always sinful. That is, for the person who has a same-sex attraction and acts upon it, or the straight or bi person who experiments with it and willfully, uh, willfully and knowingly rejects the created order, they are acting in a way contrary to the clear normative commands of God laid out in creation and in scripture. There is never a situation within which homosexual behavior is acceptable, moral, or approved by God or the church. It does not matter how loving or consensual God has spoken repeatedly and clearly on this matter. Number four, the church is to present the gospel in a loving, winsome, and meaningful way to the lost, broken, sinful, and hurting world. It's not our job to judge or condemn those outside of the church. Even when we hold up a mirror of scripture to their sin, and when we do not let their ways be our ways, we understand that vengeance is the Lord's alone. If Jesus was willing to eat and drink with sinners, to love them while they were still sinners, then so ought we. We are to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, have our speech seasoned with love, let no unwholesome talk come from our mouths, have a good reputation among outsiders, and are to be known for our love. Number five, therefore, insulting and derogatory action or language does not accomplish those ends and hurts the cause of the gospel. We can affirm the sinfulness of homosexual behavior without calling people fags or sodomites or queers or associating them with pedophiles. We do not bring people to Christ when we refuse to allow them into our churches, our homes, or our lives, or we don't eat with them or talk with them or associate with them. We can only love people when we do not hate them, and we can take a biblical stance on sin without being jerks for Jesus. Number six, our language and quote-unquote locker room talks can often hurt brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling with same-sex attraction and who would like to seek fellowship, prayer, and spiritual support. I know many brothers and sisters who are same-sex attracted and by God's providence were not delivered from it when they committed their lives to Christ. 
but they have dedicated themselves to living a celibate life. They have begged God to remove their same-sex attraction, but for whatever his reasons, he has not removed that particular thorn. But in faithfulness to Christ and submission to his word, they have committed to live a life of celibacy and they repudiate homosexual behavior. These dear saints need our love and our support. They need us to rejoice when they rejoice and mourn when they mourn. And yes, they mourn over their sin. But when they're at church and they hear people just insulting others and calling gays people fags and queers and sodomites and saying that they would never welcome them into their home, they would never break bread with them, they turn in on themselves. When we crassly insult people like them, we have condemned them to living that part of their Christian life in solitude, broken off from the body. Number seven, when we spend tens to hundreds of millions of dollars to fight gay marriage, we are giving up the gospel in exchange for governmental power. We want to try and maintain whatever political power we've scratched out for ourselves in this world and in this country, but in doing so, we have become the boot on the neck of those for whom we should be charitably sharing the gospel to and with. Now, I'm not saying that we should not oppose gay marriage by conviction or the intrusion of legal mandates against the church and the ministry and even in the private life of the Christian, but we largely have ourselves to blame for this. We could have stopped the culture wars from escalating time and time again, but we just keep fighting them. And often we fight it with a scorched earth mentality. doesn't matter how much of the gospel we give up, how much of it hurts our witness, how much we adopt an almost Constantinian approach to political moralism. So long as we beat our opponents, it's worth it. That's what we tell ourselves. Evangelicals have spent hundreds of millions, if not billions or more, on fighting gay marriage. What would the American landscape look like? What would the witness of the church be in America today if we spent that money on shelters for children who've been made homeless by parents who kick them out when they find out that they were same-sex attracted? What if we put it into fighting drug addiction and HIV-AIDS in the gay community? in visiting them in hospitals when they were attacked in a hate crime for being gay. We could do all of these things and more without ever sacrificing the biblical condemnation of homosexual behavior as sin. What would the American family look like if we fought no-fault divorce, spousal and child abuse and abandonment, and the rise of the sex cult and the sexual revolution that is destroying the church just as much as the broader culture? Why do so many think that to love our neighbors, to provide them cold water, to visit them in hospitals or prisons, to house them and to care for them just because they're gay is somehow wrong? To feed them and love them is somehow antithetical to sharing the truth of the word and of the gospel with them. Hint, it's not. And finally, number eight, I'm not going to get into it here, but transgender issues are distinct categorically from homosexual and same-sex attractiveness issues. Okay, I'm sure that I have just given plenty of fodder for so many to quibble over with and against me. 
But here I'm going to respond to an article that is directly related to this issue. One of the ways that this debate rages is the question in the questions regarding just what the Bible does or does not condemn or condone. I think the case is clear. From the creation order and the mandate of the early chapters of Genesis to the statements of that Jesus makes uh, on them concerning the two-ness of the sexes and and marriage that he makes in the Gospels, to the injunctions against homosexual behavior in Leviticus, to Paul's clear condemnation of homosexual behavior by illustration in Romans 1, and expressly in his sin lists, the Bible is clear. Homosexual behavior is a sin and is contrary to the Word of God and God's rules for living a life pleasing to him in his creation. I see absolutely no way around any of this, and the attempts by liberal pastors and progressive Christians have always come across to me as extremely weak, rather ad hoc, usually emotionally motivated, and rooted in a kind of pragmatism rather than in any good hermeneutic or systematic theology. Typically, these arguments are made by un- or underqualified lay leaders in the progressive movement or Christians trying to parrot them but often doing an even less adequate go of it. However, recently I heard a YouTube video by Digital Hammurabi that presented a paper by Harvard Hebraist Idan Dershowitz dealing with his argument where he makes a rather complex textual case that not only did the original text of Leviticus 18 not condemn homosexual behavior, but it may have actually condoned it. Many will likely never read the original article, but Digital Hammurabi uh, in its video may be widely viewed and treats the theory within the article as if it's an established and unquestionable fact. The New York Times actually did a write-up on Dershowitz's article that did the same thing. So is his article a sure thing? Well, it's simply not the case. In response, I'm going to briefly lay out his argument here, and then give my myriad of responses to it. First, let me read the whole passage from the Holiness Code that Dershowitz is working from. I'm going to read from the NASB. This is Leviticus 18, 6 through 17, and it reads, starting in verse 6, None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, that is, the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. The nakedness of your sister, either your father's daughter or your father's or your mother's daughter, whether born at home or born outside, their nakedness you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you shall not uncover, for their nakedness is yours. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, born to your father, she is your sister. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's blood relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's blood relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, nor shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are blood relatives. It is lewdness. 
You shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. End quote. Dershowitz makes note that in two verses, the regular pattern of this passage is broken. Many of the verses follow the pattern, do not uncover the nakedness of your ex, for she is your wise blood relative. Yet for Dershowitz notices that in verses 7 and verses uh, 14, that the pattern is changed. There's a transitional clause that is present to explain something that he thinks would not need to be explained if the reader uh, was understood to reject homosexual sin. Notice in verse 7 and verse 14, the nakedness is originally stated to be that of a male family member, your father in verse 7, and your father's brother or your uncle in verse 14. Dershowitz sees this it sees in this a primitive statement that would have originally followed the standard paradigm of do not uncover the nakedness of your ex, for they are your wise blood relative. If this is the case, it would mean that what was being prohibited was sex with male family members. And this may imply, he says, that sex with other men would have been acceptable. After all, why prohibit some men in the family if sex with all men was already prohibited? So argues Dershowitz, the exception may prove the rule. So Dershowitz speculates that what happened was that at some time during the redactional activity of the Torah, the times had changed enough and homosexual activity had become taboo and the scribes needed to remove the tacit implication that the text endorsed homosexual activity. And he draws on some parallels with other ancient Near Eastern cultures around Israel. And so the theory says that the that they added these apparently strained statements about the nakedness of the father being his wife and the nakedness of his uncle being his wife and such that the passage would then condemn homosexual incest only and would no longer be contradictory to the scribal desire to condemn homosexuality generally. That's the basic theory. It's a little more complex than that in the paper, and I'll link the paper in the show notes as well as the, the YouTube videos for those who want to dig in, but that's the general idea. So what can we say in response to this? Number one, for the Christian committed to the authority of Scripture, the theory itself is based on some pretty shaky concepts. Not only does it rely exclusively on a kind of documentary hypothesis redactional activity where the text went through wide-scale redaction from the original sources, a concept many scholars have already refuted as being entirely ad hoc, but at the very least highly speculative, but it also ignores that for the Christian committed to the inspiration and authority of Scripture, it is the canonical version of the text that we think is inspired for the use of God's people and not the potential sources that may have been used behind or underneath to compose the final text. So in the same way that Paul and Jude and the other authors, uh, you know, the authors of Chronicles as well as others, appeal to extra-biblical sources, and that this does not mean that those sources are authoritative, so too, if there was a text that was modified under inspiration to come into the canon, then so be it. It wouldn't be canonical. Number two, even if Dershowitz were right that the passage did not originally condemn homosexuality full stop and condemned only incestual homosexuality, so what? We have half a dozen other places we could look to that would arrive at the same conclusion that do not succumb to such textual or redactional concerns. 
Even later in Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13, this is clearly the intent of the author. Even if Dershowitz wants to say that those passages were part of the revisions that took place earlier in Leviticus 18, that would not escape the weight of other passages like Genesis 1-3, through Genesis 19, Jesus' statement in the Gospels about the two-ness of the sexes and marriage, Paul's statements in Romans 1 about the sinfulness of same-sex activity, and enlisting homosexual behavior in his sin lists. All this would mean is that one passage would no longer be addressing that issue. Number three, my main problem with the argument is, however, that it is built on a faulty cataloging of the text. It's built on the notion that there is a clear and present persistent pattern in the verses. It assumes that the pattern of do not uncover the nakedness of your ex, for she is your wise blood relative, is ubiquitous in the passage. But it's not. When we go through and catalog the structure of these laws, while there is a somewhat general theme similar to that pattern, it's often broken and broken in verses that have nothing to do with the gender of the person. I'm going to attach a chart in the blog uh, for you to look at, but you can look at that for a visual cataloging of this passage. That pattern is broken to include step-siblings, half-siblings, grandchildren, in-laws, and the last two verses dealing with sexual relations with multiple people in the same family, like the woman and her daughter, or even marrying two sisters before the first has died. They all break the pattern. In fact, the pattern referred to seems to be the exception and not the rule, and only applies to four of the twelve verses. So we shouldn't even say that the pattern is broken, because the pattern's hardly assumed. If every verse in the section rigidly followed the pattern of do not uncover the nakedness of your ex, for she is your wise blood relative, and if only verses 7 and verse 14 broke that pattern, ostensibly to change it from male incest to other incest, then Dershowitz may have a point. Unfortunately, it doesn't do that, and so he does not. Number four, given this critique above, it leaves it nearly inexplicable and rather ad hoc on why the other verses in the passage would have been altered away from this supposed structure. Dershowitz would need to almost become conspiratorial, that there was a massive cover-up such that the scribe thought his alterations would be so obvious that he had to hide his work, and he then also broke the pattern in the other six verses that also do not meet the pattern, apparently out of some supernatural insight that a whole field of textual criticism would arise over two millennia later on a different continent that might then be able to detect his edits. It just becomes so convoluted to imagine why the scribe made the edits that he did or didn't that just to make it work in these two verses. Number five, another problem is that Dershowitz seems to argue that the clause, your ex's nakedness, uh, is to convey the idea that to uncover a woman's nakedness was to violate the husband of that woman, was somehow invented by the scribes to alter the text away from the clear homosexual affirming original formula. This would need to be fed into the strange conspiracy theory machine that he has to be working on, uh, such that the scribe would also need to feed this concept into other texts to try and establish a pattern of meaning hitherto unknown to the ancient world. 
We see the same idea in other passages like Genesis 9 or parallel concepts in Genesis 49, where Reuben's sexual relationships with Bilhah, Jacob's concubine, is described as ascending your father's bed without ever mentioning Bilhah, that she was even present. The concept of sexual relations with another man's wife being a violation of the man himself is found throughout the Old Testament. If Dershowitz's theory is to be believed, these verses too would need to be seen as a part of some kind of massive textual conspiracy meant to hide the editorial work of the post-exilic scribe. Remember, we have zero evidence from any manuscript tradition or textual commentary on this passage to support Dershowitz's claim. It never appears the way he says that it originally did. Number six, in fact, this manner of sex by association where sex with a man's wife is tantamount to having sex with him, because the two are one flesh, remember, fits very well with the rest of the purity code and the scriptural teaching on the issue. It explains precisely why some kinds of incest and adultery are wrong. So not only are the features of Dershowitz is, is trying to explain not a bug, they actually are a feature of the overall sexual ethic of the Levitical law. Number seven, one of Dershowitz's arguments is that this fits in with some of the sexual ethics in the surrounding nations prior to the Persian period. And as such, Israel was right in line with the sexual ethics of their day to approve of homosexual behavior. The problem here is that Dershowitz seems to ignore the distinct and polemical aspects of the Israelite holiness code and writings. While in many ways Israel was very much a part of the ancient Near Eastern life and times, in many ways they were called out to be different, and their text showed a high level of polemical satirization of their neighbors. Gagnon writes in his review of Dershowitz's paper, quote, that Israel's firm view of male-female foundation for sexual ethics and sexual purity was intended to be distinctive within the border, within the broader cultural environment of the ancient Near East is precisely what the Holiness Code affirms. Israel must now follow the practices of the must, sorry, Israel must not follow the practices of the Canaanites and the Egyptians. Leviticus 8, 2 through 5, 24 to 30, 20, 22 to 26. This theme is consistent with Israel's long-standing prescription of worship of other gods and of images and of the images of God. Exodus 22 through 7, Deuteronomy 5, 7 through 11, which marks Israel off from the surrounding culture as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 19, 6. End quote. So with that, Another attempt to undermine the authority of the scripture fails again. Dershowitz, while he is a Harvard Hebraist and very talented, has likely let his own political agenda and progressivistic hermeneutic drive his treatment of the text. So does the Bible condone homosexual behavior? It does not. But again, that does not mean that we should not lovingly, charitably and kindly treat our LGBT neighbors with love and compassion as sinners needing the grace of God just as much or less than us. Remember, a good saying is that I am the chief of all sinners for the purpose of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them and edifying the believers within the body who struggle with same-sex attraction. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, if you have any questions, concerns, comments, commendations, or 
condemnations, which is more likely from this episode, please feel free to email me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or join the Freedthinker group pace on Facebook. Good night and God bless. So many Christians struggle with suffering, and yet they do it alone because most of us are too ashamed to let others know that we're struggling. We struggle alone because we think that there's something wrong. As Christians, we shouldn't be struggling at all. We should just have the answers, and yet that's not the case. There's many of us who struggle, whether it be within our marriage, whether it be with our children, whether it be with physical ailments. I want to let you know of a conference coming to Freehold, New Jersey to help with this. It is called the Sanctification Through Suffering Conference. It is going to be held at Chinese American Bible Church in Freehold, New Jersey. You can get all the information and the speakers. The speakers will be Justin Peters, who if you know him, you know he struggles physically. Frank Mullis, Colleen Sharp, and Joe Suazo. And we will have this conference. You can get all the details and register at strivingforeternity.org slash conference dash on dash suffering. Get all the details and I hope to see you there.